Okay, let's go to Dr. Hoffman. In September 2001, 73-year-old white female, ex-smoker times 15 years, after a 44-pack year history, performance status of zero on the ECOG scale and a normal nutritional status with no weight loss, totally asymptomatic when she went to her internist for her annual physical. The patient power walked two miles a day with her husband, and her only medical problems was a history of superficial bladder cancer cured with BCG installations 10 years earlier, a positive PPD in the 70s treated with the year of INH and B6, and hypertension controlled in hydrochlorothiazide. Because they were moving into an assisted living facility, a chest x-ray was required since a TB test could not be done. Surprisingly, a 7-centimeter peripheral mass was seen in the left lower lobe, budding but not invading the pleura. Pre-op evaluation, including PET scans and MRI of the brain, were negative. A left lower lobe lobectomy with mediastinal dissection was done, showing a primary moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma with one microscopic foci in one lymph node of 18 resected. The patient was staged as stage 3A, T2, N2. So where was the node? Lower mediastinum. Okay. The surgeon's quote was that the patient's mediastinum was so perfectly clear, it was, let's do it and absolutely be sure that we are curing her. And when they took it all out and looked, the surprise was of one microscopic foci. And what was her attitude post-op and her condition post-op? She made a remarkable recovery, which I go for power walking all the time and her respiratory status. Um, She was an intelligent individual who was a newspaper and then journal editor who had cigarettes, you know, all over the place on deadline. So she knew it was a walking time bomb, even though she had stopped. And in terms of her attitude towards the possibility of getting adjuvant therapy, was she like, give me anything you have, or I don't want to get She was ready to roll, you know, if necessary, wait for the next national meeting, figure out what to do. Let's go and do the best. She knew the statistics that even on resection, her chances of long-term survival were relatively poor, and she wanted to improve that. The key also for her, besides having a normal life with her husband in all aspects of life, was that she also was a grandmother with a number of new grandchildren. So she wanted to continue living and traveling as much as she could. So, Tom, how would you be thinking through this situation? So the difficult thing is this was 9 of 01. We're going to say if she presented today. Okay. Because I was saying, historically, you were really in a challenging position. If she presented today... I would absolutely give her adjuvant chemotherapy. I would give her sequential chemoradiotherapy. I would give her four cycles of cisplatin-based therapy. I tend to use cisplatin docetaxel, but you could use cisplatin and gemcitabine or cisplatin and vinylrelbine, I think, and be very comfortable in those choices. What would be the exact regimen, and how would you integrate the radiation therapy? So I would give 75 assist, 75 docetaxel. I give Nulasta with that regimen to reduce toxicities. I'd give that for four cycles. I'd give her a month to recover, and then sequentially would give her radiation therapy to the mediastinum. I believe that mediastinal nodal involvement is an indication for postoperative radiotherapy. In our institution, when people have positive N2 nodes, even one positive N2 node in the lower mediastinum, if you told me this was an AP window node higher up in station five, I might be persuaded not to give radiotherapy. But for a lower mediastinal node, we've been offering those people sequential radiotherapy. And I think that the toxicity of sequential is far better tolerated than concurrent. 
Are there situations where you would use carbo rather than cysts, particularly as the patient's older? What you describe this patient as a fit power walker. So for this patient, I would go to the wall and give her what I think is the best regimen, which is a cisplatin. But absolutely, if the patient had renal impairment or was frail, and the thing is, as an oncologist, you look at a patient and know whether they can tolerate cysts. And if you looked at this patient and said, this person's not going to tolerate cysts, I think you'd be very comfortable and supported in using carboplatin. How do you decide to use radiation if the patient has N1 disease but has been operating in the community and hasn't had an adequate mediastinal dissection? So that's a great decision. I can tell you what I do. Practically, in that setting, I look at the PET scan. If the CT PET is completely negative for the mediastinum, I give the patient the benefit of the doubt and don't radiate the mediastinum. Because I think unlike chemotherapy, where the evidence for survival benefit is very strong, radiation, I think the evidence is a little bit weaker. So in the absence of a good mediastinal dissection, I would just give adjuvant chemotherapy as long as the preoperative PET-CT was clean. Now you're going to say, what if there's no preoperative PET-CT? <laughs> then I throw my hands up. Okay. Tony, how would you be thinking through this situation today? Somewhat similar to Tom. I think the mediastinal node dissection must have been reasonably adequate with 18 nodes, and only one node had microscopic involvement. So I'd be less inclined to use radiation at all in this patient. I don't think all stage 3A patients warrant radiation. We don't really have a lot of data to support radiation in this setting. It's all indirect. There are no randomized comparisons. I definitely would use chemotherapy. I'm a little different about my feelings on the platinum agents. I really don't like cisplatinum. I know it's the only agent that's been studied adequately in the adjuvant setting, so therefore, logically, people use it. But I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between carbo and cis in terms of efficacy, in terms of survival and advanced disease. Carbo is so much easier to use. And I've made that jump, and again, I don't argue with anyone who uses cisplatinum. And in this type of patient, I would use a carboplatinum-based regimen, probably gemcitabine and carboplatinum. But I wouldn't argue with taxotere or taxol and carboplatinum for four courses and then stop treatment. I wouldn't use the radiation. Okay, let's continue on with the case. Okay. The patient was treated with four cycles of carboplatinum and paclitaxel followed by external beam radiation therapy to the affected pleura and superior mediastinum to just below the level of the recurrent laryngeal nerves. Prophylactic cranial irradiation was given as well at 200 centigrade per dose times 15 sessions. Prophylactic pomidronate was not given. Following completion of all therapies, the patient did well. Returning to baseline except for some delayed recall in recent memory, with quote-unquote answers always being on the tip of my tongue, but would eventually get the correct answer, and no longer being able to rapidly do mathematics in her head. Did this bother her? Yes, particularly because she was a fact-checker and is an editor knowing things and trying to get recall, but she compensated and recalled, and the way that she compensated is by putting reference books on her desk. And just by talking around that she was able to use a different pathway. Instead of using I-95, she used Route 1. But it took her a little time, and if sometimes she didn't think of the answer, it came to her. But it was a definite all through the rest of her life. It was certainly definite that her thinking was microscopically slower. And it was recognized by her children, by her coworkers. But it was not inappropriate thinking. It was just that it was slower. Now, just to dissect out the two elements of her treatment, you were using adjuvant chemotherapy before we knew that it worked, correct? That was 2001. 
I guess. But Teaneck is ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Hackensack, so that's what I say. And also I know his father, so, uh, <laughs> who was one of the adjuvant? giants. In this kind of a patient, you know, for, the only people I was using adjuvant for were the N2 patients in 2001. So I might have used, but what I might have done here is I might have, in retrospect, given concurrent, which we know is not the thing to do, but I probably would have treated this person even in 2001 because they had positive nodes, positive N2 nodes. Tony, were you treating adjuvant long before the data came out? Long before, but not every patient selected. I think her risk was so high that without the data, you have to be a clinician and at least consider it. I did it in this type of patient. Now, the other thing that's obviously unusual about the fact is that she got PCI, and I thought it was interesting that Dr. Huffman actually has his own protocol that he started looking at this, and maybe you can talk about that. Well, my background is in public health and epidemiology and biostatistics. So one of the things of knowing about lung cancer is that patients who have lung cancer, a major site of relapse is the brain. She had stage 3A disease, which really was surprising. But even in the literature, survival is 25% long-term at best, 75 relapse. And about 50% at that time was felt that the primary site of relapse was brain, somewhere between 33 and 50% in retrospective studies. So an attempt was made to do PCI Allah using an analogy such as a person who goes in complete remission with limited disease, small cell carcinoma, and wrote it up and went through our local IRB, which is in the hospital, in an attempt to try to do this and see if it would make sense. And preventing not so much overall survival, but preventing neurologic deterioration if recurrence occurred and what would happen long term. So you started your own protocol, basically, and you were the only person putting people on The other two oncology groups in my three hospitals were not participants. And so how many people have you put on up to this point? Up to this point, we have 12 patients on in five years, of which nine of the 12 patients have died. Seven of the nine have been fully autopsied. In April of 2004, the patient presented with painless hoarseness. ENT evaluation showed a paralyzed left vocal cord, CT of the chest showed a subthyroid mass that confirmed metastatic lesion. Remainder of extent of disease workup showed a 5-centimeter lytic lesion in the left pelvic rim. The patient was begun on Q3-week doxetaxel and pomidronate. In August of 2004, the patient complained of shortness of breath, and a large pleural effusion was noted. A thoracentesis and pleural biopsy was negative for tumor. After complete drainage by a chest tube, where again pleural fluid, pleural biopsy were negative by tumor, and a fiber optic thoracentesis was looked at with no evidence of tumor, the patient was switched to weekly doxetaxel. By mid-October, a full evaluation showed no evidence of disease. The patient's treatment was stopped on Thanksgiving 2004. Within three weeks, the patient noted new symptoms of shortness of breath and right upper quadrant pain. Standard disease workup showed widely metastatic disease in the left upper lobe of the lung, the bone, and the liver. The patient refused further therapy, entered hospice, and died on January 7, 2005. An autopsy confirmed the presence of widely metastatic disease, except in the brain, where no lesions were found. What was it like to take care of this woman? It was an honor. She was a true partner. She was the first patient that gave consent and did it. And it's always like anything else. The first one that does well, you want to continue doing it. And she was a fighter. And her family was very supportive. It was really fun. It also taught me a lot, since I deal a lot with geriatric patients in Northern Jersey, that 70-year-old people, age doesn't really matter. You treat based on how well the brain functions, not how much the age of the patient is. What was her quality of life like from the time you met her until the time she died? Quality of life was absolutely normal until she relapsed. 
So she had three years that were... She went on cruises. They were cruise and travelers, and you would never know where she was. She would send you postcards. Her wall was littered with postcards where they traveled. After her relapse, the interesting part for me was when she got her left pleural effusion, it was sure there was recurrent disease, and despite innumerable workup, we never could see it. And even with the thoracic surgeon, which was also very aggressive with her, never saw the tumor. So we initially thought this was a taxotere toxicity. And when she went weekly, the pleural fusion never recurred. Once her disease returned, she was done. She told us she had finished. She had done the job. She had run the race. Called her family and said we were finished. A couple of her children tried to talk her into going on Tarsiva. was just coming out then, an oral agent. She was done. She said she wasn't feeling any problems, any pain. And it's like the recent research has shown. It's not the patient at end of life that's having a lot of the agony. It's the family and the provider because I'm an aggressive guy in treating and saying, you know, you've done so well in these other therapies. Who's going to know what's going to happen if you take Tarsiva just for two weeks? This may be one of those tumors that just, you know, stabilize or melt. But she was adamant that she had done her job. And she said her kids were stable. Her grandchildren were fine. She was happy with her lot in life. It was time. Was it difficult for you? Yes. Not difficult in the sense that she was dying and there was progression. Lung cancer progresses. I mean, we understand that. But for me as an oncologist, the hardest thing for me is not telling someone they have cancer, but telling them that the treatment that we've decided on and the disease comes back. Because you always think in the back of your mind, could I have done something different? Could I have done something better? But when a patient who's done so well says, no, I think I'm finished, they know better than you. Even at 20 years in practice, you have to step back and say, you know, maybe you're right. You know, maybe there is no reason to go that extra 2% that the quality of your last few weeks will be just fine as you want it. So yes, it was somewhat difficult to pull back and do hospice. And she went into the hospice, but I did not take care of her. I visited as a friend the last three weeks of her life. The assistant director took care of her. Because he also is a, your director, director of, of hospice. hospice. Interesting. So, Tom, there was a major plenary presentation on ASCO talking about PCI in extensive small cell. Can you talk a little bit about what was presented, what you think the clinical implications are, and what you think about this study trying to look at non-small cell? So I think that the point being from what we learned at ASCO this year was that for small cell lung cancer, even in extensive stage disease, patients who have any degree of response seem to benefit from getting prophylactic cranial radiation. And that confirms the feeling we knew for quite some time that PCI certainly helped limited stage small cell that had a nice response. But now we believe that for extensive stage small cell that has a partial response that you can still benefit patients in terms of prolongation of survival in that setting. Many of us have long suspected that there would be a benefit in stage three disease as well, as you had pointed out in your experience. In fact, the RTOG has tried, Tony, you may know, there was a randomized RTOG trial, which was in trouble of closing for poor cruel, which may still be open or may have just closed, looking at PCI versus no PCI. In fact, I think it's still open. PCI it's, versus yeah. no PCI RTOG in, zero in stage three. And so the RTOG is trying to ask that question. So my gut feeling is, what you did was probably right. My gut feeling is PCI probably helps, but we don't have any data yet to support it. Tony, what were your thoughts about the presentation and how do you translate that into practice? Clearly, not every single patient's going to be given PCI. What was your take on the data and how did it change, if at all, your approach to these patients? Yeah, in the small cell situation. Right, small yeah. cell. Well, I like to see that data. I think the group data showed some advantage of radiation, but there are so many extensive stage small cell patients who have some response that I personally wouldn't give whole brain radiotherapy to. Those with diffuse disease in their bones and liver, and 
I think you're fooling yourself. This is my view of this data. However, in patients with small numbers of metastasis or otherwise in fairly good shape and have a reasonably good remission, I would use prophylactic whole brain radiation, and that study would give me a little more support for it. But the majority of patients that I see, I probably wouldn't do it. I don't think they would benefit. They're just too debilitated, and the disease is too devastating. So I wouldn't do it. In reference to the non-small cell, I mean, you were ahead of your time in thinking about this. There's a study now, as you mentioned, that's an intergroup trial sponsored by RTOG, but the accrual is extremely slow. And it's probably because they're randomizing between PCI and no PCI. And that's a tough sell. That's a tough sell in our cooperative group, as Bill could attest to. Are there situations where you might use PCI non-small cell right now? Yes, I think, then again, it's a judgment. We don't have the data, but I don't arbitrarily say every patient that I see I wouldn't give it to. His patient, I thought, was a reasonable candidate. There was pleural involvement. There was nodal disease. The relapse rate was high. The chance of CNS disease and morbidity from it was great. And like Tom said, I think you're going to turn out being right. And you were just doing it several years ahead of time. And we're paralyzed unless we can make decisions about our patients. If we have to base everything on studies, we're not going to be able to treat patients. Bob? Just a brief comment. I saw that data on the extensive stage small cell and PCI, and frankly, it kind of annoyed me because I would rather not send those particular patients for PCI and put them through that. It's not a horrendous therapy, but it's still somewhat time-consuming. These patients are all going to die anyway, and hardly any will have any sort of long-term survival. So when I saw that, I said, gee, I wished it would have been a negative trial, which may be a terrible thing to say. I don't know, but this is one of those trials that just kind of bothered me as a clinician that I didn't think ultimately was really going to help people. Tom? But I think just to emphasize one thing Tony said, I think the way most of us will interpret that study is when we have somebody who's got just oodles of liver disease and bone disease and disease elsewhere, we're probably not going to think about that patient for PCI. But there are plenty of extensive stage patients who I was not sending for PCI who had had smashing responses who probably would benefit. So I think if we're selective in who we use and use clinical judgment, I think that there will be a population of patients we're going to help. There is one other point that I'd just like to ask, and I understand we're dealing with brain metastases, but it's also the use of whether one should use prophylactic bisphosphonate therapy for high-risk disease because you do have metastatic disease that can go to bone, and giving bisphosphonate is relatively benign with rare exceptions. And whether or not there's any added data, because there's a number of studies going on on this, not only in breast but in all solid tumors, because the two areas where this individual relapsed, okay, was above the radiation port, but was bone. And I've always wondered in the back of my mind when you're saying, how did I feel about this? I was wondering whether or not if I had given bisphosphonate, whether or not the bony disease would have been prevented. Because really her pain and issues at the end of life came from her bone being destroyed more than anything else. Tom? I don't know. It's just an interesting... It's a very interesting question. I have not been doing that routinely in lung cancer. I know the emerging data in breast are intriguing, but I just don't know. 